You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Good morning. Today's reading comes from Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work in that he and that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Well, hey, <clears throat> good morning. If you're uh, new here, my name is Joey. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Citizens. It's my honor to typically preach when we gather. Thanks for making it out on a, such a rainy, miserable day. Uh, speaking of miserable, last Sunday after church, for whatever reason, I left church, got in the car with Rebecca. She turns to me and notices I am just like deflated. In all days last Sunday, I just lived in this state of just depression. You know, just wasn't a good day. I was deflated literally all day. And I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't figure out why, what was going on in me. So here's what I did. I got up bright and early, early, dark and early Monday morning. And I spent time in silence and solitude with the Lord. And about 20 minutes in, my mind, it begins to grow aware of what's going on in my inner man, my inner life. And my emotions, they begin to like become comprehensible. My mind starts putting words to what I've been feeling. And I realized about 20 minutes into that silence and solitude the following day that there are several lies that I had been believing. Uh, I believe that I have so much to do, so overwhelmed, so busy. When the truth is, things can wait and the world will keep spinning it'll be okay. The other lies believing is that I just, I feel like I have to prove myself to you guys sometimes, you know? I just feel like I have to hit a home run sermon every single Sunday. I feel like I've got to be smart and be uh, really polished as a pastor when I'm counseling somebody. I just feel like I got to prove myself sometimes, and that's not true because in Christ I have nothing to prove. I'm already loved. I'm already approved in Him. I believe the lie that this church's success will be my salvation, I've believed that lie before. That's not true because I'm already loved. I'm already saved. And that's just me being vulnerable with you guys. But we all in here believe lies. We all in here take lies into our being unconsciously. And that's what makes us deflated. And that's what gives us a day of depression. We'd have no idea why we're in a rut. But we identify those lies and begin to separate those lies from ourselves and then replace the vacuum with the truth of God when we what? Rest with God. Practice stillness with God. And so today we're studying Sabbath. Sabbath is something that we, we really don't talk about much nowadays because, you know, it's part of the old covenant. We're not obligated to practice Sabbath anymore. It's, it's not like, uh, you know, Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. We don't have to practice it anymore. But I've been convinced that this is a crucial spiritual discipline that we have neglected in our own time, and it's been to our complete detriment. Remember that the seventh day in the creation account, it's a standalone day. The whole, you know, all the other six days, there's corresponding parts to one another. First day to the third day, second day to fourth day, so on and so forth. It shows that God is preparing the world for humanity. But then the seventh day stands alone as the ultimate day, the pinnacle day of creation. It's the best day. It's because we were meant for Sabbath. Everything leading up to the seventh day was to usher us into Sabbath rest with God. So it's for good reason then that in the Old Testament, Sabbath, it becomes the central event in the life of Israel. In the New Testament, Sabbath becomes paradigmatic for understanding our very salvation, our very spiritual life with God. So we have to understand Sabbath. We have to practice Sabbath. Now, when I say Sabbath, okay, at its fullest meaning, here's what I'm talking about. A literal 24-hour day of rest and worship. No phones, no work, only life-giving rhythms. It's my goal for my family, for Rebecca and I and our kids, to be practicing a Sabbath every week. I love to be there as a family. You know, Friday night to Saturday night, we're practicing Sabbath. We're unavailable because we're worshiping, we're having fun together, we're resting. It's my goal for our church to be a church that practices Sabbath as a community, not legalistically, again, but as you will see, because practicing Sabbath is good for our spiritual health. It's good for our effectiveness as a church. But Sabbath, okay, can also mean this. 
It can mean mornings of solitude and silence. It can mean walks in creation. It can mean retreats by yourself. It can mean any time you're just setting aside margin and creating space in your life to be ministered to by the Spirit, to open up your soul before God and let Him minister to your inner man. That's also what Sabbath can mean. It can mean 24 hours of rest. It can also mean just space and margin in your life where you allow God to work. So today what I want to do is build a theology of Sabbath. Uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it really is the seed of the entire Bible. Everything in the Bible blossoms out of Genesis. So what I want to do today is build a biblical theology of Sabbath, really trace the teaching of Sabbath, what it looks like over the course of the whole entire Bible, and present that to you. So we're going to see a few different things here. First point is this, that we're going to study about Sabbath. Sabbath is subversive. Sabbath is subversive. What I mean by that is Sabbath is a counter-resistance against the status quo of our time. In verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, it says, God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy because on it God Shabbat. He rested. There's where we get the word for Sabbath. He rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So first we see God blessed the Shabbat, the seventh day. He blessed it just like he did mankind. Remember a few verses before this in chapter 128? God blessed man, and we see that there's like covenantal overtones. A special relationship is built there when he blesses somebody. So it means that God has this special relationship with the seventh day. He also says, it also says here that he made the seventh day holy, meaning he consecrated it. He set it aside. It's a special day. So God has made a special arrangement with the seventh day. But also, when we read the word blessed, you know who else is blessed besides man in the Sabbath? The animals also in chapter 1 were blessed. And the connotation there, one of the undertones there then too, is that anything that is blessed has the ability to procreate. And so God blessed man, God blessed the animals, and now God blesses the seventh day, the Shabbat. What can we draw from this? Uh, John Mark Homer, pastor, author John Mark Homer says, it means that the Sabbath, just like an animal or a human being, has the life-giving capacity to procreate, to fill up the world with more life. So Sabbath, which means literally to cease or to delight, it's an invitation to stop striving and to become available to God. So he installs, God installs a special day where we cease, begin delighting, so we can receive life, the life that we need. And so remember, the Hebrew people are the ones that this is written to. This is their story, their origin story that Moses is giving them so they can have purpose and meaning as a new people, a new community. And so they're hearing this origin story that they were made to rest with God. They were not made to work for God. They were made to rest with him. And this would be hard to believe for them because remember, they've spent the last 430 years filled with anxiety about if they're producing enough, if they're working hard enough because the Egyptian taskmasters uh, would threaten your family, would bother your family, harass your family if you didn't work hard enough, if you did not produce. So rest for this community people, it was never an option. They had to work in order to survive. So ingrained into their psyche is the lie that they are what they do. And so what Moses does, or what God does through Moses, is he gives them these 10 commandments. And that's where we find this commandment that they are to Sabbath. And when you analyze the two instances where we read the 10 commandments, where we see the instruction to Sabbath, Something interesting emerges. So the first time God uh, commands Sabbath is in Exodus. And I'm not going to read it, but he commands it on the grounds of the creation story, meaning God rested, so you must rest. That's what Moses tells them. It's a blessed day. It's a holy day. Sabbath is a gift that God has built into the world for your renewal and rejuvenation. That's what he first says in Exodus. It's, you do this because God rested. He modeled it. But then you read the second time. This is instructed to the people in Deuteronomy 5, 15, and it changes. Look at it with me. As a new generation is gearing up to enter the new land, Moses tells them, and notice the difference. 
you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So can you tell the difference there? Are you picking up on the difference there on why he's instructing them to celebrate Sabbath? Sabbath moves from being grounded in the creation story to being grounded in the Exodus. So Sabbath is not just how Israel would refresh themselves as God modeled for them in the creation story. Sabbath is how they would redefine themselves as a people who were saved out of labor, saved out of finding their meaning by what they achieve. So it's not just renewal, it's also how they redefine themselves as a community. So for Israel to practice Sabbath, it means they are unlike the world. Sabbath is a subversive act. It's a resistance against the status quo. Egypt, the other nations, they're building empires But God is saying to his people, the most important thing you can do for me is nothing. Just be with me. And Israel didn't practice Sabbath only once a week. They practiced a week-long Sabbath three times a year at their big festivals they had on their calendar. They also practiced a year-long Sabbath every seventh year. And every seventh seventh, meaning every 50th year in their calendar, was the year of Jubilee. It was the ultimate Sabbath where all debts were cleared and all slaves were released. So Sabbath, it's built into their life. It's the fabric of their life together with God. Now think about this, okay? No other other nation is doing this at this time. One historian says that up to this point in history, no civilization had ever given ordinary working people a regular day off. This is revolutionary. It's a very subversive thing for them to practice Sabbath. No one else is doing it at the time. And you need to remember, where is Israel located? To the north of them is these massive empires, later on Babylon and Assyria. To the south of them is Egypt, powerhouse Egypt. And so the only way these northern and southern empires get to one another is through Israel. You know, there's sea on the left, there's desert on the right. They're not going those ways. They're going straight through the land of Israel. And so these foreigners, they're coming through on the weekend, and what do they see this entire nation literally doing on the weekend, on, si- on Saturday? Nothing. They're not working. They're literally resting as an entire community. You have to realize that would be shocking and strange for all the other nations to witness. Even in the Babylonian creation story, the Babylonian God announces the purpose behind mankind's creation and says this. This is what the God Marduk says. I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they may be at ease. You know, in all the other ancient stories, the parodies of God's good creation, man was purpose. The reason he existed was to work and produce so the gods could rest. But Israel does not work for God. They rest with him. Very different, very subversive And so Israel had to untangle themselves from this lie that's been baked into their psyche that they are what they do, that this is what it means to be human. In our psyche, it's saturated with the same exact lie today. This is why this is so relevant, okay? There's three ways that this lie shows up in our life right now, our cultural moment, okay? Three ways this shows up. We live efficiently, don't we? Like right now, you got to live efficiently. And so there's this new children's book called One Minute Bedtime Stories. Uh, these are condensed children's stories into 60-second sound bites. And one columnist who read this and covered this said he had this immediate tension within him. A part of him thought, at last, a simple way to get my kids down at night without all the hassle. At the same time, he was horrified to realize he was trying to optimize his time and avoid the frustrations of bedtime rituals. You know, all technology is pushing us towards efficiency, towards a life of literally shortcuts and life hacks. Your watch, it not just tells you your time now, but it literally maximizes your time. It will think for you, plan for you, so you don't have to think and plan. And here's what's interesting. We're so efficient, aren't we? For all of our efficiency that we've built into our lives, we're not more restful, are we? We're more busy than we ever have been. 
How often when someone asks you how you're doing, is your reply, I'm busy. Sinful. We are so bad. So sinful. We're busy though. We're busy. It's like a badge of honor. Oh, we're, we're working hard. We're busy. We have things to do. We're not lazy. So we live efficiently. We love to, we, and we live to work. Here's the other lie. We live to work. You know, life is about what you're doing, what you're achieving. One political scientist says that Americans work longer hours, have shorter vacations, get less in unemployment, less in disability, less in retirement benefits, and retire later than people in comparably rich societies. We just live to work. And thirdly, we work to matter. We think it looks really bad if you're, if you're resting. You know, Harvard Business Review conducted a study recently that talked about this change in the social status in America. It looked at all the marketing techniques of today in comparison to like 50 years ago. 50 years ago, to sell you the vision of the good life, you know, that you're rich, that you're successful, it was a leisurely picture of the good life. You know, you play tennis, you drive a nice car, you're by the pool. Now, the marketing technique is you're driving a Rolls Royce into Manhattan, getting ready for a long day of working in the office, that you don't have time, that you're busy, and that's how you know you're successful. The more you sit around and relax, the less status you have. That's what we think. And so when someone asks you how you're doing, you know this is true because you'd feel lame. If someone asks you how you're doing, you'd feel lame if you said, oh, I'm doing, you know, I'm fine. I'm Sabbathing today. You know, I'm resting. I'm just, you know, carving out some space in my life to have my soul opened up to God. You know, how lame would you feel saying that? We'd rather say, oh, I'm grinding. I got so much to do. I, you know, things are going so well, but, you know, the, the, the to-do list is piling up, but it's okay. It's just, you know, the new normal now. We have this badge of honor that we work to live. We're efficient, that our work matters, and it defines who we are. And for this, Sabbath has died. Sabbath is dead. You know, in the 1960s, there were laws that forced businesses to close on Sabbath. There's a government mandate restraint on the pace of life in America. But now, uh, everything's open 24-7. Back then, nothing was open but the church. Now today, church has to compete with malls and restaurants and everything else. So Snabbath, Snabbath, Sabbath, (laughs) Sabbath has been snuffed out in our workaholic, grind culture, and because Sabbath is snuffed out, so is our vitality. One professor, A.J. Swoboda, he sums it all up by saying this, our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history, yet with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. In bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on edge. Our bodies wear ragged, our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in 24-7 living, we seem to be, able, to be able to do anything but quench our true thirst for the life of God. The result is that we have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. And so we desperately need to return to the practice of Sabbath, not because it defines who we are as a community of people, but because it's our form of counter-resistance against the lies of our time. And even our bodies, literally our bodies are telling us that this is true. It's literally, it's literally been proven that once you work a certain number hours of hours a week, your productivity, it plummets. And that, that amount of time based on research and data, is a six-day work week, about 50 hours, and we need the seventh day. We work the seventh day, we're not productive, doesn't matter at all. On the other hand, one other interesting fact, a medical journal it recently published who were the happiest people on earth, get this, near the top of the list was a group of Christians called the Seventh-day Adventists. You know what the Seventh-day Adventists do? They practice Sabbath religiously. And it's been discovered that these Seventh-day Adventists typically live 10 years longer than the the average American. Now think about this. If I Sabbath every seven days 
for 70 years, it adds up to almost 10 years exactly. So the data shows that Sabbath actually does produce more life. Sabbath, the seventh day that God blessed, actually is a life-giving event. So the longevity, quality, happiness of your life may literally depend on your decision to practice rest with God. And so we've absorbed these lies of our time, and we're obviously paying the cost of it now. Our current culture is just like those Egyptian taskmasters who demand more work, more production, and Sabbath, just like when Israel practiced it, is our resistance to the lie. Sabbath is a declaration that we are made by God, for God, nothing else. Sound good, right? Like, we need it. Are you sold yet that we need this, that we're tired, that we're exhausted, that we're depleted? Look, to practice this subversive thing called Sabbath, it takes great trust. Underneath the practice is great trust, though, because Sabbath means we release productivity. We release outcomes. It means we are okay with others getting ahead of us. It means we're okay with not getting some things done. It means we're okay living in the tension that there's a lot still to do, but the world's going to keep on spinning and I'm not in control. It takes great trust to practice Sabbath and do this subversive thing. I want to go back to what I said earlier. Israel, they practiced Sabbath once a week. They practiced it three times a year for a whole entire week. And they practiced it every seventh year. They practiced it every seventh year by not working the soil. Okay, God told this agrarian culture to not work the soil every seventh year as an act of trust to him. I want to read that for you in Leviticus. We're building a biblical theology of Sabbath here. Leviticus 25, Moses writes this. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field. For six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for the cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and command my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. Here we go. Listen, the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather our crop, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. And then one more, Leviticus 26, just repeating more of this. He says, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, I, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. You shall eat old store long kept. You shall clear out the old to make way for the new. So I hope you're, hope you're seeing the plan here, like what exactly God is telling his people to do and what's at stake. He's telling this agricultural community whose survival is literally based on the harvest. He's telling them to stop working the soil for an entire year and trust that God will send rain and provide for the next three years in the sixth year, the year before. He told them that in the seventh year, they're not to touch the soil or the crops. And then in the eighth year, they're not to prune. They're only to touch it in the ninth year. That's crazy, isn't it? This is their survival. This is how they're going to make it. And God's telling them, trust me with your very life. You need rest. And the land needs rest. I'm literally building a reality into the framework of the world so you get it. You need a break. Stop striving, worship, rest. This is the same as God saying to you, here's what I want you to commit to, okay? 
Don't report to work for an entire year. The following year, only check your email and I'll make you rich the year before all that. So things go so abundantly well in your absence, you don't have to worry about anything. Also, I can call you into my rest. Also, that you can spend more time with me. And also, that you can, also so you can untangle from yourself the lie that you are what you produce because you're not. You are who I say you are, the beloved. Come rest with me. Would you take that deal? Would you take that deal, take an entire year off? Right now, you might say yes, but then you go back to your life tomorrow, and then you might be like, ah, things are going to fall apart. Things are going to fall apart if I do that. So God's calling us into this subversive act of Sabbath rest. I want to point out uh, one other significant thing that's in Genesis so far. First, remember that mankind is made on day six. Everything before him is made for him, a world created to enjoy, to work, and keep, and subdue. But man does not come along until day six, right? And so day six, he's created. What happens next? On the seventh day, God rests. He creates what we call the Sabbath. So get this. This is so interesting. The first thing Adam does in his existence as a human is rest with God. It's the next day. He's not working. The world that's been made for him, the immediate thing he does is he rests with God and then he works after that. Ken Shigematsu in Survival Guide for the Soul. I posted that on Instagram for you guys, okay? Man's for, he says this man's first full day on the planet was a day off. We began existence on the Sabbath. God created us to rest before we work. If we violate this order, we damage ourselves. We really are made for Sabbath. And just to reinforce this, just to reinforce this, it's interesting that in Genesis 1, day one, day two, day three, the repetition is this. It was evening, and then it was morning. It was evening, and then it was morning. It was evening, and why isn't it morning and evening? That's how we understand the day. We understand the day to begin when we wake up and to conclude when we put our head on the pillow at night. But that's not the Jewish mindset. That's not how the Hebrew community would have understood it. They understood that the day begins when we go to bed the night before. The day starts last night, which means we spend the first part of our day resting before we ever do anything. Biblically speaking, that's how the day is considered. So in a world that runs on sweat and effort and grit and defines your worth by what you produce, God is telling us, that the world runs while we're sleeping. When you wake up in the morning, there's dew on the ground, spider webs spiraled in trees, trees budding. God is at work while we sleep. He does not need us. We think we're so essential to our life working out well. We just are not. Rest. That's what God's humanity does. That's what his people do. The subversive act of Sabbath rest. Isaiah 30, 15 says, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. So Sabbath, it's subversive. We need it. It's different, but we need it. The second thing I want to show you as we look at Sabbath through the Bible is that Sabbath is really formative. It's a formative practice, meaning it changes who you are from the inside out. So Every day, you need to know this, we are being formed either into the image of Jesus or the image of the world. Like you and I are being discipled at any given moment. You just might not know it or be aware of it. And there's no middle ground here. Like we're always being formed either into the image of Jesus or the image of the world because we are bombarded with stories and images and messaging that broadcast this good life, this image of the good life, fit, wealthy, successful, popular, influential. And that good life that I just described, it's achieved by what? Blood, sweat, and tears. Working hard. That's who matters, right? And we've believed the lie that the good life will make us happy, and so we resign ourselves to this hurried, disoriented life. 
Anyone feel that? Anyone feel just like hurried and disoriented typically because they're trying to just achieve this vision of the good life? Let me ask you a question. Is that making you more like Jesus? Do you feel like that's making you more like Jesus? Do you feel like that's who Jesus was at all? He was the most undistracted, unhurried person in the world. He gave people his complete presence. He gave people his complete focus. You know, Jesus waited 30 years before he preached his first sermon. When he preached it, you know what he did right after that? He went into the desert for 40 days. He just did not buy into the lie of producing and working to achieve and have a platform and matter. He could have. He didn't. He cared very little about what people think of, thought of him. He lived for others. He didn't have a home. He was unhurried and undistracted. The good life and all the work demanded, it's making us less like Jesus. And truly, it's also making us less human because our, our hearts shrink, our minds dull, our souls are crushed underneath the weight of the demand. I'll tell you this, another moment of honesty, my worst moments as a husband as a father and as your pastor and as a friend were because I believed in the lie of the good life and it made me a wound up ball of stress. You know, we're constantly being formed and determined about who we're going to become by what we believe. So if you want things to be different, you must value who you're becoming over what you achieve. Okay? And so if you're not careful, you'll end up being formed by the narrative of the world, that message that's being broadcast all around us of what the good life is and what it takes to get there. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, it says this, that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's like referring to just like typical day in, day out. We walked in a certain way. Not only that, but we followed the course of this world. It's almost like there's a current here that we're being caught up in, a stream, a whitewater rapid that we're being caught up in, and therefore we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. So Paul, the apostle Paul, is picturing the way of the world as a stream that you can get caught up in, and you can't swim against it. You can't swim upstream against it. The only way you get pulled out of the stream is by drastic means. And Sabbath is that drastic means. To put a full stop, full stop on the craze around us and give ourselves fully to God, making our inner being available to him. So make no mistake, you and I are being formed into the image of the world unless we are seriously committed to counterformation, a counter-resistance. And Sabbath is that counter-resistance, and it brings about a counter-formation. It makes us more like Jesus, unhurried, totally present, non-anxious presence. It makes us more like Jesus. So think about the third soil in the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, 22 says this, this sower sows the seed of the word, the seed, the message of Jesus, the kingdom that he's inviting us into. And it says this, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, okay, that's all of us, but the what? The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So fruitlessness, lifelessness, how does that happen? The lies of the world, the image of the good life, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. The person who is unfruitful is fixated on the world's idea of the good life. Ronald Rollheiser, spiritual formation expert, he says this, problems occur when we produce a climate within which it is difficult to not just think about God or pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. We get choked out. We get choked out. Now, many of us won't shipwreck our faith, you know? We won't just become apostate and walk away completely, but many of us, because we buy the lies of the good life, will settle for a very mediocre version of our faith rather than a life 
with God. So the person who's formed deeply, who's, who's full of life and spiritual fruit, what happens? Matthew 13 goes on and says this, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another case 60, in another case 30. So what is the good soil that's not choked, you know, it's not choked out, but it produces? It shows signs of life, real spiritual life. What's the good soil? Good soil is tenderized. It's cultivated. Good soil is undistracted. It's still. It has the time and space to receive deeply the seed of the Word. Many times when you're reading your Bibles, how long does it take for that actually to do something to you? For something to click and for you to actually be electrified and moved and nourished by the Word of God? It takes a while. It's not immediate. The good soil still creates space, makes itself available to God. Sabbath It disentangles us from the lies of the world. It creates space for us to have a spiritual life with God where he attends to our inner being so that we are formed into more loving, light, peaceful people, people who look more like Jesus. Unhurried, undistracted, totally present, living a life of love for others, not for self. So if you want to make a clean break from the lies of the world, which are absolutely forming who you are and determining your destiny. You have to accept Jesus' invitation to rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Sabbath. Take my Sabbath upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Look, (laughs) we have to repent of being busy We have to repent of saying yes to everything and overcommitting ourselves and striving after this false illusion of the good life. And we need to repent of all of that and replace it with Sabbath rest. So I hope you're beginning to see the value of Sabbath. But if you want to receive this invitation to rest, let me tell you this, and this is paradoxical, you have to be deliberative about Sabbath. It's not just going to happen on accident. You have to be seriously resolute about Sabbath rest with God. So Hebrews 4 is a passage all about Sabbath rest. And it says this in verses 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest, that's your salvation, You've been brought to new life in Jesus. You're united to him. Who's ever entered God's rest, he rested from his works as God did from his. No more striving, no more producing, right? But what does he say next here in verse 10? This is interesting. You've been saved, you're in. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The disobedience he's referring to is that generation that was walking around in the wilderness, the, the, the Israelites, who heard the message about God's Sabbath rest, but they did not unite their hearts in faith to it, and they missed out on it, and they didn't enter the land. Strive to enter the rest that's been made available to you. The rest of God, it's available, but we don't accidentally fall into it. It takes great deliberation, which means if you want to create space in your life for God to work deeply in your being, you have to say no to a list of good things so you can say yes to the best thing, Sabbath rest. Think of how we observe a holiday like Christmas or Easter We gear up for it. We plan for it at a day in advance. We do all we can to make it special. We approach it with great anticipation. That's what Sabbath rest is like. You have to plan for it like a holiday to get the most out of it. Jesus says this in Matthew 11 about the kingdom of God. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has suffered violence. But look, and the violent take it by force, meaning those who are serious about life in the kingdom of Jesus They do all they can with all their might to enter into and experience life to the full. So when you hear Sabbath, yes, synonyms for that is ease and rest. But that doesn't mean it's easy. And that doesn't mean it's not demanding. You have to be deliberative. 
if you want to have rest with God. Nothing worthwhile has ever been easy, right? And God, interestingly, he models this deliberation, this ordering of life so that there is rest that can occur. He works for six days, then on the seventh day he rests, which means that God puts this cosmic house in order. He has everything where it needs to be, arranged where it needs to be, so he can stand back and say, it was very good, it's finished, there's no hiccups, there's no crisis, there's no distraction, there's no disorder, he can rest. God is deliberative, and then he models rest so that we can be deliberative and enter into his rest that he's inviting us into. So most mornings, I wake up at 5.15. I didn't this morning. I slept in a little bit. My parents are here watching the kids, so I took advantage of it, okay? But most mornings, I wake up at 5.15 so I can have still, quiet time with God, like uninterrupted, long enough time with God where it actually matters and means something because it takes about 20 minutes for anything to occur in my heart. And so I splurged, and I got a, a, a new coffee maker that has a grinder and brewer all in one. So I set it the night before to 5.15, so I wake up to fresh ground brewed coffee. And that might sound really small to you, but let me tell you what. 10 o'clock the night before, when I'm tired and just want to go to bed, setting my coffee and getting it ready is the last thing I want to do. But I know that if I don't do that small, little, deliberative step, I likely won't get up at 5.15 to practice Sabbath rest. You know, it's interesting. As Christians, we believe that God's omnipresent, which means his presence is everywhere. He's with us now. He's all around us. He's everywhere. Um, The problem is that we're too busy to notice. We're not aware of God's presence, even though he is present with us at all times. But awareness of the presence of God happens when you when you are deliberative about creating space and stillness so that your heart can be attuned to the presence of God. Sabbath, it does not invoke God's presence, but it helps us attune our inner being to the God who is already there. So make a plan. Clean your house. Have laundry done. Have meals prepped or not because it's Sabbath and you don't need to be in control. But make a plan. Be deliberative. Or as Hebrews 4 would say, strive to enter that rest. And lastly, Sabbath as a practice, here's what it does. It redirects our hearts. It's redirective, okay? So Hebrews continues on, chapter 4, verse 8 says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of a a day later on, another day later on. So Joshua, here's what he does. He conquers the entire promised land. By the end of the book of Joshua, it's, it's Israel's. They have it all. Okay? They, they, the promised land has been realized. But God says that there's a rest that's still available, a rest that is yet to be fulfilled, which means that like Sabbath rest was more than just abiding safely and prosperously in the promised land. There's something more. Okay? There's a more ultimate Sabbath. There's a, a better Joshua, a second Joshua who will deliver to us the true and abiding Sabbath. So what what Sabbath should speak to us more than anything is the finished work of Jesus, the true and better Joshua. Sabbath, it creates space for the Spirit of God to do His work, which is this. You know what the Spirit's job is? To remind our hearts of the gospel. The Spirit, more than anything, His task is to remind our hearts that we are the beloved in Jesus. That we don't come to God on the basis of our own confidence. We don't come to God on the basis of our own good works. We come to the Father and enter into His presence on the basis of Jesus' finished work in the Spirit of God. He reminds our hearts day in, day out, morning by morning, every Sabbath rest, that we are loved apart from what we do because Jesus has done it all. Romans 5 says this, that through the Spirit, God's love is poured into our hearts, okay? But what is God's love? Okay, what is God's love? Here's what it is. While we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one may dare die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what God's love is. We we could not meet him halfway. We were helpless and lost and stuck in sin and guilty before him. And in a decisive act of God from the overflow of his love for us, he sent Jesus to save us. Practicing Sabbath redirects our hearts to the love of God because it creates space for the Holy Spirit to pour God's love into our hearts. Galatians 2.20 says this, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Sabbath, it trains our heart to grow continually conscious that we are loved by God when we are in sin when we are weak, when we are helpless, when we are unimpressive. We are not loved by God when we are improved and achieving and succeeding. That's not when God loves us. God loved us when we were at our worst and he still loves us. That's what Sabbath reminds us of. Sabbath, it opens our souls up to God so the spirit can be poured into our hearts. His love can be poured into our hearts. We're like Jesus as baptism. Before Jesus does anything, Before Jesus does a thing, God shouts from heaven, this is my beloved. In Christ, that's you. You are his beloved before you've done anything for him. So when we stop, let go, surrender ourselves to Sabbath, we then can more freely accept the gift of righteousness, the free gift of grace, the free gift of forgiveness, the unearned status of beloved children of God. And as much as Sabbath redirects our heart to the cross, reminds us of the cross and how God feels about us, you know what it also does? It redirects our hearts to the future world. When we will be in a true and abiding eternal Sabbath, and Sabbath won't just be one day of the week, Sabbath will be every day of the week in the new heavens and new earth. Practicing Sabbath today, it's like a foretaste of the age to come. Our eternal Sabbath rest. So, Sabbath, it's subversive. The world's not doing it, and it makes you stand out. Sabbath is formative. You're always being discipled. You're always being formed. The question is, by who? Sabbath helps us enter into more Christ formation. Sabbath is deliberative. It takes planning. It takes work. Strive to enter that rest, and Sabbath is redirective. It directs our hearts to the cross. It directs our hearts to eternity. Now, Can you imagine how you would be different and how your life would be different if you practice Sabbath? Can you imagine how unique our community would be if we practiced Sabbath together? A community that is redefining itself, not through performance, not through achieving, not through grinding and succeeding, but just being beloved? So, um, some of you here, okay, this is probably not the best way to end a sermon, but I'm going to do it anyway. Some of you here, this doesn't matter at all because you have too much time on your hands. You have like Sabbath all the time. That's not good. Listen to last week's sermon on work and get to work and get a job, okay? But for the rest of us, all right, some of you here need to repent of busyness and grinding and saying yes to everything and breaking your back, people-pleasing, and begin practicing Sabbath. Some of you need to do the godly thing of letting other people down and saying no. Some of you need to cease overcommitting. Some of you need to trust God that you're not essential to your life going okay and take your hands off and rest with him. Some of you right now, less is more. Remember how I started, you know, taking these lies into my being that I need to prove myself, that I have so much to do? See, replacing those lies with the truth, that's not hard. I think most of us know the truth of the gospel, know the truth of scripture, but you know what the hard part is? Detecting the lies. What lie is actually making you bent out of shape in a ball of stress and making you unloving and making you impatient and making you unhappy. That's the hard thing, pinpointing the lie that you've absorbed into your life. Sabbath is slowing down enough 
to identify the lies so that God can replace them with his truth. So Sabbath may scare some of you because you think, my workload, 24 hours, that's unrealistic. Or giving each morning to God and practicing stillness. Here's my question for you. What storyline are you telling yourself? The storyline of the world? The good life? Achieve? Be successful? Be the image of the good life? Or are you telling yourself the story of God's humanity? That we're created to rest and enjoy Him. To cease striving. And before we do anything for Him on His behalf, first and foremost, we are the beloved. Period. So, so the seventh day, God rested. And that rest still stands, and he's inviting you into it. The ball is in your court. What will you do? Let's pray. Father, we today resist the lies of the world that we are what we produce. We are not. Our worth and our significance is not dependent upon outcomes and product and achievement. Our worth and significance comes from the fact that each one of us are made in your image after your likeness. And when united to you, Jesus, by faith, we are called sons and daughters. We are beloved. We do not need to strive anymore. And we can trust you with our mornings. We can trust you with a day so we can open up our souls to you and have you pour your love into us. God, we are sorry for being control freaks. We are sorry for being workaholics. We are sorry, God, for not trusting you. And so, Lord, lead us in your path. Lead us in the way of Jesus, who was unhurried, who was undivided, who was at peace constantly because he walked in step with the Father and did nothing outside the Father's will. Make us more like you, Jesus, by your Spirit, we pray and ask. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.